0: Almost all of that water is driven out as it's crystallized. And it turns out that metals very often like to go with that water. So iron, copper, zinc, silver, all kinds of metals can escape from the magma in that fluid. And that fluid gets out and, and interacts chemically with the rocks around it. It mixes with other water rainwater and other natural waters in the surrounding rocks that circulate in there. And you wind up with a system that is circulating heated water through the crust underneath the the volcanic center at the surface. Um, This is the kind of thing that you see happening um, at, at a large scale right now in Yellowstone Park, where you've got geysers at the surface. That's a very large hydrothermal system there. You know, if you could come back 50 million years in the future when all the magmatic activity has died down, you'd probably find a pretty good gold deposit mm-hmm. there. Um, but this type of system very commonly produces uh, deposits of copper as well as other base metals. And so it should not then surprise you that most of those countries that I talked about being large producers of copper, most of them are right on convergent boundaries where this kind of uh, volcanic activity um, is common. One thing that you often see in systems like this is that there's, there's chemical formation in them where some metals are concentrated higher up above the magma up in the body of the volcano. Other metals may be concentrated much deeper down in the earth. Um, That's not a, a function of anything related to how heavy the metals are or how dense they are. It's related to how well they stay dissolved. And some metals, they precipitate out of fluids at high temperatures, others will stay dissolved until relatively low temperatures and so metals will tend to be zoned with some of the deeper ones. Typically tin will be something that will crystallize deep down. As you go up, you'll sort of go into copper, and higher up in the volcano, you'll hit an area often that is silver rich, and if there's gold in the system, that often is very close to the surface. Is that just based on their density? No, no, not really. Because I mean, some of the ones that, are, that occur high up in the system are, are things like gold that are pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, just, it's just a function of their uh, dissolution chemistry, how easily they stay dissolved. Uh, a typical zonation that you might see would look something like this, where you would have tin lower down, and then copper, and then lead and zinc higher up above that. If you continue this picture upwards, you might find silver above that. That's not related to density at all. Tin is one of the less dense minerals that I've just named. And lead is one of the most dense. They're not related to that, how easily they're (coughs) dissolved in the fluid. And they're precipitating directly out of the magma when in contact with hot water. They're they're precipitating, sorry, Precipitating out of the water that has left the magma. Yeah. It's the separation of the water from the magma that concentrates the metals. The metals prefer to go into the liquid and out of the magma, so they get concentrated in that liquid. And so the fluid can be pretty briny, it can be pretty metal rich. And so as the fluids are circulating out along fractures, then the metals can precipitate out and form veins. If you look at uh, distribution of major porphyry copper, uh, copper, lead, zinc, silver, tin, gold deposits, deposits in this general family, you see there are a lot of them. So this, this brings us to an example here. This is Chuquicamata. Kamada. is a is one of the most important single copper mines in the world. It's an open-pit copper mine in Chile, <coughs> northern Chile. Um, this one is really a monster. If you remember back in the last lecture, I showed a graph that showed the commonly mined grades of copper through time. So back in the early 1900s, you had copper mines that were typically three or 4% copper. And then as time went by, through in past World War II, copper grades mined around the world got lower and lower so that they were down to less than a percent, down to half a percent copper in the ore. Chuki Kamata, is extraordinary because it has one of the largest reserves of any copper deposit in the world. The sheer tonnage of ore it has there is enormous, but the average ore grade of that for a long time was above 2% copper. (coughs) So not only did you have a lot of ore, you had ore that was dramatically above the minimum ore grade. This is really, really a fountain of employment and profitability here. This this was really, really hitting the, the bonus. And it's also, over time, it's become the largest open pit mine in the world in terms of volume. It's more than a kilometer deep. The open pit itself is it's more than a kilometer deep and it's about four and a half kilometers long. So that's a lot of rock that's been drilled and blasted, and it's so large now that really, right now during this year, they've they've gotten to the point where the open pit is as, as wide as they could make it without, you know, losing their stripping ratio and having to move too much empty rock. So. This year, they are shifting from operating it as an open pit mine to making it into a block caving mine. They're extending the floor of the open pit downward by excavating underneath it and and collapsing it as an open pit mine. That's gonna keep Chukikamata probably running for another 50 years. Really, this year, I think, I think just a couple months ago, they had the last open pit blast um, in there, and they've, they've since transitioned into converting it to an open pit uh, block caving operation. This is exploration for that kind of stuff, in the Peruvian Andes, that, that's me, in, back in Harrier times. No um, way. Um, so we <laughs> were, looking for some some silver deposits uh, in Peru. Actually, the the irony on that particular day was that we were there to do field geology, and to do field geology, you have to be able to see the ground. Um, that night, it snowed about six inches, and we couldn't see anything anymore, and we basically went home uh, after that. We, we took our animals and left. This is a, a, a little, uh, mining district in northern Peru, a place called Cerro Walgai um, I'm pretty sure none of you have heard of that before, unless you just happen to be from northern Peru. Um, but Cerro Walgaio was a, an area that the Spanish had heard about. Uh, this was an area that native miners were mining for silver and copper before the Spanish arrived there. And when the Spanish came, they took over the mining operations. They enslaved the natives to work in the mines. And they put them to work there. And for looking at the Spanish colonial records of the mining production here, they went through months at a time where they produced ore that was 30, 40, 50% silver what they were taking out of the ground was more than 30% silver metal. Uh, so this was a pretty spectacular place uh, back in the day. Is it still in production or no longer? It's, it's still, there's still mining going on. This particular part of the district is not being mined very much. You can see there's a, a little road there. There's some underground workings that are accessible there. The, the level of mining is pretty low right now because if you wanted to make a profit here, what you'd have to do today is go in and open an open pit mine there. And this property has a complexity in that there are a few dozen old Spanish families that all own mining claims there. They all own mining claims next to each other and nobody wants to sell out to their neighbors and abandoned it. So it's kind of locked in a kind of property (coughs) battle of those different families. The areas surrounding this are are still pretty active, though. Uh, In fact, this right here is a, a vein that was in a mine that was pretty much underneath my feet when I took this photograph. So if you went straight down from where I was standing, you would pretty much come into this vein deposit. And this is interesting because that is a a vein deposit of mostly silver ore, uh, silver ore. What you're seeing, the glittery silver stuff that you see in the photograph is not really silver. The glittery silver-looking stuff there is the mineral galena, which is lead sulfide. Um, The brown stuff there is sphalerite, zinc sulfide mineral, and there's a little bit of chalcopyrite uh, in there. But if you crush it up and analyze it, it's got about a percent of silver in it, which makes it pretty sweet stuff. So they were mining that stuff out. This was all dissolved metals that were precipitated out by fluids as they were passing along an old fault zone and they they precipitated metals out in that open fracture until they had pretty much completely sealed it up. What you're looking at right there is that's the center of the old fracture. The minerals grew in from the walls here this way, from the wall here this way, until they had pretty much filled in that entire fracture zone. (coughs) So if you go into a lot of these mines in, uh, in the Andes, You'll find at the entry of the mine, there's usually a little chapel there, um, so you'll you'll be able to make a little offering and say a little prayer uh, before you go in to the mine. Um, what I didn't include a fi- picture of is what you also often see in these mines is that once you leave this room and head into the tunnel into the mountain, there's usually another little chapel. Just off the tunnel, which is a chapel to the local pagan deity, okay, to 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 the Papa, to the to the god who owns the mountain, and so the local miners they'll leave him things that he wants, which is usually rum and coca leaves. <laughs> and, and they'll, they'll offer some prayers for their own safety there and that's, that's something that you see that's something that you see a lot in, in the Andes because if you're, if you're working in a place like Peru or Bolivia those are countries that have a large share of their population that's indigenous okay, they're, they're not like other countries where the entire, the entire indigenous culture was swept away by European invaders you've got 40 50% of the people who are of indigenous descent and a lot of those people live in the mountains and so those kinds of beliefs will be very common and also because of that um, another thing that you will notice a lot of times is if you go into these underground mines especially the underground mines you won't see any women working underground the the miners The native miners have superstitious beliefs that it's a bad idea to have a woman with you underground, that the the god of the mountain will be jealous and bad things will happen, accidents will happen. And that kind of superstition is strong enough that a lot of the mining companies, they just, they don't want to fight it. They just let it go. They hire male-only miners. Um, I've worked around mines like that, very often, I had a a colleague when I was in graduate school who was a PhD candidate, and she was doing her dissertation on a Peruvian mine, a mine way up in the mountains in Peru. And before she graduated, she was able to go with her advisor and visit that mine, and in order to get her into the mine, they had to completely physically Conceal her appearance. They had to dress her up in in costume so that she looked male, so that she could go into that mine with her advisor and actually see this thing that she had been devoting six years of her life to. Uh, It's interesting, too, to see the differences from one country to another. Because, for instance, if you go to Chile, you very often see mine workers in Chilean mines who are women. And in Chile, if anything, there's almost a, a kind of reverse uh, type of uh, of discrimination because they they often prefer to hire women to operate the heavy equipment, to operate the cranes, to drive those big trucks. You know, the, the, the superstition there is that the women are gonna be a little bit a little bit calmer, a little bit more relaxed, and they can be trusted operating this really heavy equipment. Um, So that kind of thing you you see all the time. Uh, There's a, a nice open pit mine. This is an old one in central Peru, an open pit mine. This was just at the point where it was just closing down. It reached just about the end of its lifespan there. So it was excavated. The city around it, where all the miners and workers live, is still there. Here you've got the, the crushed rock, the worst rock pile uh, over to the side. Um, something that you will often see in these mines is an area of super gene enrichment. That means an area where the mineralized rock was weathered to weathering to groundwater, before it was discovered and we began mining it. And what that, what that weathering can do is it can wind up breaking down some of the mineralized rock and dissolving out the metals there and reprecipitating them down at the water table. And it can produce an area of very rich ore right down there where that uh, water table is. Something that's often called a super gene blanket, where a lot of metals that were originally scattered through the ore up here are all concentrated down there. Um, having an area of Of a, of a big mine in the U.S., this is Bingham Canyon. I've shown you some older photographs from Bingham Canyon before. Uh, this is a, a view of Bingham Canyon where you can see right here the upper part of the ore body is all reddish. <coughs> okay, that's the part of the ore deposit mm-hmm. that was affected by weathering where rainwater is oxidized the higher that was present there. The area below that is kind of grayish green. That's the area that was not affected by weathering. So the super gene blanket was right along the top of that. That was was the area where the highest grade of ore was located um, in that open pit. Um, Another way that you can concentrate copper is by uh, precipitation of copper minerals from hot springs. This can happen um, in lake beds or on the sea floor, where you have hot water circulating through the rocks underneath, dissolving metals, and then coming back up into cold water and chemically precipitating the metals out, producing uh, layers of sediment that are how it looks like when it's happening at mid-ocean ridges. Okay, where At mid-ocean ridges, it's very common to have these kind of hot springs that they call black smokers. This stuff is pouring out very hot water, shooting out of vents on the seafloor. And it, it looks like smoke. What's happening there is you've got hot water with metals dissolved in it coming up. And it's maybe at 350 degrees centigrade coming up and then boom it goes straight into ice cold seawater at the floor of the ocean. It cools dramatically and all of those metals instantly precipitate out. And so those are little grains of sulfide minerals suspended in that water and rising up there. And they'll form little little chimneys, little bodies of material that will grow up from the sea floor factory smokestacks coming up. And that material can spread out into layers of sediment in that kind of setting. Okay, so that in turn brings us to zinc. Um, Zinc is uh, a metal resource that is interesting because it's in front of our eyes all the time. Uh, We're surrounded by zinc. Uh, being used, and and we're almost always unaware of it. Um, It's a commonly produced resource. There are lots of places in the world that have zinc deposits. Um, The the biggest producers in the world uh, in order today are China, Australia, Peru, and the U.S., but there are several other countries that are close behind us that could increase their production if they wanted to. Isn't zinc what all our coins are made of? It's, zinc is the most important thing in pennies. Yeah, um, the, the, the really key use of zinc is as an anti-corrosion material. It's used to prevent corrosion of iron and steel. If you, if you see a metal roof, a kind of shining silver metal roof, it's silver because it's got a coating of zinc on it, okay? That metal, that that galvanized steel, the galvanized part is means that it's coated with zinc. So it's, it's a layer of steel and it's got a skin of zinc on it. A, a, a chain-link fence is coated with zinc. That's why it doesn't turn into rust instantly. It's got a layer of zinc. The reason that works is that the zinc oxidizes just a little bit more easily than iron does, so it kind of weathers and dissolves away slowly and keeps the, prevents the iron from doing that. Uh, it's also used in the form of sacrificial anodes on boats and, and on marine motors. If you go and look at an outboard motor, Someplace you look at it somewhere, it's going to have a little bar of zinc bolted onto it. Okay, and that little bar of zinc is going to serve exactly that purpose. When the motor is in sunk down in the water, that that little zinc anode is going to react with the water to prevent the steel from rusting. Okay, that's why aircraft carriers don't turn into rust. Okay because they've got great big bars of zinc bolted to their hulls. That's one of the things that they do when they're servicing one of those things, they bring it in to dock to service it. They'll drain the water out, they'll clean it up, and they'll replace the sacrificial uh on the, on the deck to protect that hull from rusting. So it's a very, very widely used thing. It's, it's present literally everywhere around us. Um, And it's uh, virtually something that nobody even thinks of. Cadmium is another uh, metal that is used for similar purposes. It also occurs in sphalerite. Those two, cadmium and zinc, can both be ingredients in the mineral sphalerite, which is the main ore mineral of zinc. So that can also be used as a corrosion-resistant coating. If you go to, if you go to Home Depot and you look through the screws, you'll find the expensive ones, which are stainless steel. Okay? And then you'll find the unexpensive ones, which are galvanized steel. They'll have a layer of zinc on them. And then there'll be ones that are a little bit more expensive than that, that are kind of shiny and, and gold looking. Those are the ones that have. Uh, that coating of cadmium, but that's something that we use all the time. Minor uses of zinc, we use it in nutritional supplements, right? we get it in vitamins, sunblock, I use a lot of sunblock, you know, a a good full moon can give me uh, a sunburn. Um, So zinc oxide is a very uh, important uh, sunblock. That in turn brings us to to lead. And lead is a metal that has a a complicated story and kind of a checkered record. Lead at one time was much more widely used. It was much more valuable because it had much broader commercial uses. It was used as an additive in gasoline, okay? It was routinely added to gasoline. Supposedly, to make the gasoline produce more energy, uh, that was the theory. Um, and also, lead was initially the base pigment of paint. Okay, if you buy paint, that paint is um, is a chemical compound, and <coughs> that compound, before you get it colored fine base paint. It's going to be white. and Originally, for a long time, the white pigment in paint was lead oxide. So if you bought a quality paint like Dutch Boy, okay, that bucket was heavy because it was full of a lot of lead oxide. Okay, You added other components to it to give it the color you wanted to have, but the, the base compound there lead oxide. That meant that until the early 1970s, when you're painting buildings, you're laying on a layer of lead oxide. So between the use of lead as the base pigment in paints and the addition of lead to gasoline, we had two really, really efficient ways of injecting lots of lead into the atmosphere and into the environment. Lead was, at, at those times, lead was valuable. You had mines that were actually primarily lead mines. Nowadays, you're not gonna find any mines that are primarily lead mines. Lead, the, what lead we still use is produced as a byproduct of copper and zinc mining. Um, and we stopped using it because it became apparent that there were serious problems. We discovered that if you measured the blood lead concentration of children, that there was a very strong correlation between high blood lead in children and low IQ. Okay. And also uh, a correlation between high blood lead and behavioral problems, discipline, violence-related, mis- Turns out lead is lead's an atom that is a lot like calcium. It's, it's a divalent cation, it's about the same size as calcium, and so it can get into metabolic processes and try to pretend to be calcium, and it can mess up those processes. And that's a problem because calcium does a lot of things in our bodies, okay? So it's one of the few things that we know of that really has no safe exposure level. So now, releasing lead into the environment is something that is pretty closely uh, guarded against. The major uses of lead today, the big one is in conventional auto batteries. If you have an ordinary uh, lead-acid battery in your car, and you've got about 40 pounds of lead under the hood of your car, that stuff is almost strictly recycled. If you get a new battery, you turn in your old one. It's used in ammunition. Lead is still used in bullets. Um, Gradually, over time, it's getting displaced there uh, for instance, if you're if you're hunting waterfowl, if you're hunting ducks or geese, it's no longer legal to use lead shot. If you get caught using lead shot, you can pick up a pretty hefty fine for that. You have to use steel shot, and even in the kind of ammunition people use to shoot uh, deer or hogs or something like that, lead is gradually getting phased out. It's getting replaced by bullets made of. there's still a significant use of it and it's used in weights and sinkers. Uh, If you look at releases of lead into the atmosphere uh, through time, you see for a long time it was dominant Um, the mid continent area has a significant number of lead mines, the Mississippi Valley type deposits that uh, occur in Missouri, Illinois, places like that. Um, they were known for a long time. The French had discovered those. And the Lewis and Clark expedition was tasked with you know, one of the things that Jefferson wanted him to was to go check out the lead mines uh, on their way uh, to the Pacific Northwest. So you wind up with material like this. That's a a good (coughs) Mississippi Valley type ore. That chunk right there, that big cube, that's a cube of galena. That's lead sulfide. The rest of that material there is mostly sphalerite, zinc sulfide. That's a deposit of sphalerite from one of these Mississippi Valley-type ore mines that we've gone to on field trips. This is in eastern Tennessee, where we picked up a big boulder. In fact, I think this particular boulder that's in this photograph, I think, is on the third floor of the building. We brought it. of those mines when it was still operating in that case you had ore that was pretty high grade it was also very coarse grained in that photograph the zinc mineral is all of that kind of brownish yellow stuff the stuff in between there is all carbonate yang that's all minerals you want to separate because it's a pretty coarse-grained ore and because the minerals are very different from each other, it was possible to separate them physically in the plant almost perfectly. And at this particular deposit, they had big deposits of the waste rock, the carbonate waste rock there, that they were actually allowed to sell commercially. It was so clean. And so people would come by and buy it to use as road metal or agricultural line and they would haul it <laughs> away, which was fantastic for the mining company. Not that the, the income made much difference, but this was a vast volume of rock that they didn't have to they didn't have to store. They didn't have to accommodate it. People took it away for them. Um, that is something you don't see in in active mines very often. Okay and that that brings us to 10 Tin is used as a coating on steel in containers. right? So tin cans are steel cans that are coated with a layer of tin. That's a very common use. Tin is also used in glass manufacture. It's used as an alloy in steel. And lately, it's used in the manufacture of superconductors. Um, Major producers of tin around the world include China, Indonesia, Peru, and Bolivia. Okay. In China, it's mostly hydrothermal ores. In Indonesia, it's mostly a placer, mostly placer deposits of cassiterite, which is a tin oxide mineral. No, no. It's the, the tin. The tin has different properties than than copper. It's it's something that has its own distinct use. The tin has uh, a different range of valence states from copper, so mm-hmm. it behaves it behaves quite differently uh, from copper. Um, and then finally, that brings us to uh, molybdenum. Molybdenum. I talk about in this lecture mostly because as the as ore deposit, it forms in the same way, in the same kind of magmatic, hydrothermal way that the copper deposits that we talked about form. In fact, there are deposits where copper and molybdenum form together uh, that way. Um, however, molybdenum itself is more properly considered to be a ferro the main use of molybdenum is in steel. Um, so you add it to steel to increase the hardness and resilience of the steel. The main ore mineral of molybdenum is molybdenite, which is simple molybdenum sulfide. Historically speaking, the U.S. has been the world's leading producer of molybdenum for a long time. We've had a couple of big, big molybdenum deposits The Rocky Mountains again, magmatic hydrothermal uh, circulation uh, formed deposits. Um, It typically forms in large hydrothermal deposits like the porphyry class of copper deposits, and it's typically mined in large-scale, low-grade, open pit. Sure. Short essay. Yeah. It's it's gonna be one page. Okay, so we have just enough time to, to make a little start on our next on our so we've talked about the we've talked about the base metals. Now we're gonna talk a little bit about the, the precious metals. Okay, these are some of the glamour resources, you know, when you think about taking class in three sources, you think, oh, maybe hopefully he's going to talk about gold. Okay, so gold and, and silver are very uh, significant. Um, gold has had a very great influence uh, on people uh, historically. It's one of the metals that occurs in the metallic state in nature. So you don't have to be able to smelt it to be able to recognize it Uh, The gold mineral grains that occur in nature are malleable, ductile, and chemically inert. So that made them very, very striking minerals to the Stone Age people who were first discovering them. They they were clearly very different than other kinds of minerals. Um, So it has a long history of use then by people as currency as ornamentation and in status objects. And also, discoveries of gold around the world have caused several historic mass migrations, something I've alluded to already in this class, like the California Gold Rush. You had European immigrants into North America come pouring across North America into California after gold was discovered there. You had similar thing happened a little bit later in Alaska where you had uh, a gold rush into Alaska. More recently still, we've had an Amazon Basin gold rush taking place. And of course predating all of that, we have the Spanish conquest of the New World, which was not driven entirely by gold, but that was certainly one of Gold occurs in the mineral state um, as electrum. And what electrum is, is a natural (coughs) gold-silver alloy. Gold and silver dissolve in each other 100%. So most of those gold nuggets that you see are actually gold-silver alloy. Obviously, the higher proportion of gold to silver you have, the more desirable it's going to be, the more value it's going to have. Geologically, gold deposits form in one of two ways either as hydrothermal deposits, precipitated by moving hot water, like we were just talking about in the case of copper. Okay? Most, but By no means, all hydrothermal gold systems form at shallow depth in the crust. And so there's a class of gold deposits that we call hot spring gold, where you have shallow hot springs, geyser-type settings, where there is gold being precipitated in the rocks around them. There are active volcanoes around the world where it's been documented that gold is being precipitated in hot springs active volcanic systems, okay? So that's that's one important way in which gold deposits form. The other important class of gold deposits are what we call placer deposits, okay? Placer deposits, again, those are places where you're mining the mineral from the, from the soil. The, the gold occurs as a mineral in stream sediment or in soil someplace at the surface. Of the two types, historically, you know, going back through the history of mining, probably about half of the gold that's ever been mined has been produced by placer mining, and about half of it from magmatic hydrothermal deposits. They're both roughly. Glass or deposits of gold form because gold is much denser than most common minerals. Typical, ordinary rock-forming mineral like quartz or feldspar is going to have a density of about 2.5 grams per cubic centimeter. Gold, pure gold, is going to have a density of about 19 grams per cubic centimeter. Electrum is going to be somewhere around 10, 12, 14. So they're way denser than ordinary rock-form minerals. So they're going to tend to want to accumulate in the bottom of the stream in any little place where the flow of water is blocked a little bit. If you look at production of gold through time, okay, you had early production of gold by pre-literate civilizations gold for, to use as currency, to use as decorations. As, as time went by, more and more gold became produced, and in recent years, gold production has taken off very quickly. If you look at gold production from various countries plotted here, the USA is this, this dark layer right here. So we were producing gold fairly early. We've recently had an increase in gold production (coughs) in recent decades. Um, You have Australia, which has been producing gold for a long time, also has had increased production recently. Okay, Canada has been a significant producer. But the really striking one here is this guy in the bottom, that light gray, area, which is South Africa, our old friend South Africa. In South Africa, they started producing gold in about 1890. And they began producing gold until at a certain point in the 1970s, 1980s, they were producing more than half of the gold that was being produced worldwide. In fact, through history, looked at over the entire production history of gold mining, probably close to half the gold that's ever been mined has come out of the ground in South Africa. Um, It's really, really extraordinary. And they have uh, a truly unique deposit of gold there. And they also have uh, a very strange social structure that's been involved in the development of that gold mining I'm going to have to stop there right now because we're out of time.